0: WDBM, East Lansing.
1: 89FM. The Impact.
2: And now,
0: Impact Exposure.
3: Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is
0: Impact Exposure. Exposure.
1: Good evening. Thank you for tuning in to Exposure on Impact 89 FM. I'm your host, Stephen Rich. This week, we'll be taking a closer look at the ongoing conflict in Nigeria, examining the Proposal One initiative appearing on in the August 5th primary election in Michigan, discussing the future of the LGBT Resource Center at MSU, and much more. This is Exposure. Exposure. <laughs> Again, I am Stephen Rich, and this is Impact 89FM. You are listening to Exposure. The militant organization Boko Haram made international news headlines in May after kidnapping over 200 schoolgirls in northern Nigeria, and the violence has not stopped. Attacks continue overtaking more and more towns, but international attention seems to have waned. MSU journalism student and Nigerian native Nicole Ngwe sat down with me to discuss the continued struggle.
0: Um, hi, <laughs> I'm Nicole, and I am from, technically I'm from Lagos, Nigeria, because I was born and raised there, but my parents are from the east side, and they're from Emo State in Lake, in Nigeria as well, but I grew up in the west side. Uh, growing up was cool. I went to an all-girls Catholic high school. <laughs> Not so cool, but <laughs> but it was fun. It's usually very hot back home, so it was mm. nice. It's always summer, so... Um, I came to Michigan State University. It was actually, like, my last choice. It was the last school I applied to. But for some strange reason, it reminded me, like, growing up and watching, like, you know, college movies on TV, American college movies. That's exactly how MSU reminded me. <laughs> um, and I just went to experience that huge campus feel. And plus, my major was very, like, journalism is very... um. It's very good here. So I was just like, yeah, perfect. Mm-hmm. So I'm coming here.
1: Well, we're glad you're here. Welcome. So what, what do you think it was the biggest change coming from Nigeria, moving to Michigan and coming to Michigan State?
0: Definitely the weather. <laughs> <laughs> the I'm weather. assuming you guys
1: don't get any snow. No. So wait, when you came to college, was that the first time you'd seen snow in person? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As someone raised in Michigan, that's crazy to me. Yeah. <laughs> like, I see it too much. Yeah, I know. Um, and so one of the reasons I did want to talk with you today is because Nigeria, your home, has been experiencing a lot of increased turmoil mm-hmm. um, over the last couple months. The um, uh, Islamic militant organization, mm-hmm. Boko Haram, has been terrorizing uh, a lot of e- northern Nigeria, as you corrected me, not eastern mm-hmm. Nigeria, yeah. um, with major attacks. It included the kidnapping of the uh, 230 um, schoolgirls in May. Sparking it, which sparked a lot of international attention. But there's been a lot of continuing attacks as well, most recently the violent takeover of the town of Demboa. Mm-hmm. And so um, most students would never have to deal with anything like that. So I, I was just interested in your experience of your home home country being in, in this state of distress. How have you been able to cope and stay strong while you're here and while that's going on in your, in your home?
0: Well, I would point out first that I am not exactly directly affected by this like I haven't lost any loved ones or I haven't been in a situation where I had to be face to face to any militants, but um, it's sad, and like being here and being somewhat safe mm. from all the violence, it just makes me like feel like helpless, like I can't do anything to help anyone back home, and I always worry for my family's safety, obviously, like in case they ever move from the north to the west, for instance. Like what would happen? I'm here. I can't really do anything. So, this is feeling of unrest, and it's just—it's not just me. My friends too, who are from um, back home as well, we all feel like this weird. Like you don't know what's going to happen. Is a war going to break out or not? Mm -hmm. So it's just we're just waiting and hoping this is just going to come and pass. You know.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you were telling me before that your family is in Lagos, which is in the east south West. west. West, excuse me, mm-hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> West South, which is uh, thankfully very far away from that. So we're yeah. very, I'm very glad to hear that. Yeah, um, <laughs> but, and so you've been keeping in t- contact with your family. Have they been feeling the same kind of um, uneasiness about it as well?
0: I mean, you, if you like, I I went home, like, let's see, the beginning of the summer to get my visa renewed, actually. And if you lived in Nigeria in general, you really can't forget about it. Like, you can't forget that that kind of stuff is happening because you hear it every day. You see every day news. There's always someone dying or people being attacked. It's just something you have to keep your eyes open. And we always get, like, they always get, like, for now, i say they're false, but they always get false alerts and stuff like, oh, this place in Lagos where I live is going to be bombed tomorrow mm. and stuff like that. You know, terrorist, like, attacks and... All this false stuff, so it always makes you very paranoid. Like, any moment from now, that building next to you might blow up. You yeah. know.
1: Mm-hmm. So, how has your family been regarding you being in the U.S.? Are they are they happy that oh, you're here? Are glad. <laughs>
0: <laughs> My parents are glad. They feel okay, fine. They have to worry about three children being with them and in this period, mm-hmm. but they're like, oh, yeah, we have one child who is away. And we know they're safe <laughs> somewhat. <laughs>
1: That's good. We're glad you're here. Um, and like you said earlier, you had to get your um, visa renewed earlier. Mm-hmm. And Ed kind of directed this to me because you guys had some problems renewing it. Yeah. Um, do you mind talking a little bit about that as well?
0: Well, me personally, I don't know what anyone else is experiencing, but I had this problem where I was supposed to get my visa actually renewed Christmas 2013, mm-hmm. this last year. And it couldn't be done because apparently the embassy was closed down. And this was because they got a threat, a bomb mm-hmm. threat that, oh, Boko Haram was going to bomb the embassy. So they closed it down on the day of my interview. Perfect. <laughs> um, So that had to be. And it's not the easiest thing getting an interview date if you don't know for us. Mm-hmm. It's like they try and keep about, I don't know, I think they said about 20 um appointments open day for students. But obviously, there are more than 20 students every day wanting to come to the U.S. for school. So, yeah. So, me not being able to go that day made it very hard for me to get another one that same time. So, I had to wait till the beginning of summer to do it. And even when I did go, there was another threat locking me. Um. So, my interview got moved again. So, I had to stay home for an extra week. And then, I finally got my visa. Mm-hmm. So... And I'm saying this for me, but I can imagine how impossible it is for other people who are in the north mm-hmm. and want to come to school in the US because I'm in the West and I'm having these problems. So if someone who lives closer to the the problem itself, the embassies are probably shut down, <laughs> right? Yeah. So yeah. And I,
1: I I'm I mean I've I have never had to get a visa, so I'm very <laughs> ignorant. To this, so Lucky excuse you. <laughs> me. If I if I, if I sound a little um just Uninformed, but oh, okay. the visa process. So you have to go to the embassy and have an interview.
0: Yeah, you have to fill out a bunch of documents, and which is obviously procedure. And then you have to pay some money, and then you, and that is for your interview. Mm. And then you actually have to go in in person and get interviewed by a, a consul officer. They are usually Americans. Usually, sometimes they're not. Um, and then they interview they interview you for a while usually it doesn't take too long but it does take long if you don't have all your stuff together oh. and then they decide then they decide there and then if they're going to give you the visa or not wow. so it's like That's right stressful. in front of everyone, it's like oh you have been denied
1: <laughs> <laughs> have you ever you haven't ever been denied your visa uh, I
0: won't be here if I,
1: <laughs>
0: if I was <laughs> Yeah.
1: Well, yeah I mean that process in itself does that make you feel like less welcome coming to the US or is it um,
0: I mean, compared to the British method, which is just you wait nine days and then they authorize you or not. I kind of feel it's nice because you get to, I wouldn't say defend yourself, but you get to defend yourself. And be like, (laughs) I'm coming here for a good reason. Mm -hmm. Not just them looking through your files and being like, oh, we don't think you're good enough. They ask you the questions there and then like, why do you want to come to the US? And you tell them. And if you have a good enough answer, why wouldn't they give you the visa? So I think it's good in a way. Mm-hmm. in a way. <laughs> um,
1: And so, have you experienced anything within, like, the university helping out students who are in countries that are having conflict? Have you received any assistance from the university? Or do you think it's their place to provide any assistance? I
0: mean, the, the I don't know, the assistance they, they give us is, like, they provide our I-20s mm. and that just authorizes the embassy to go ahead and maybe give give us the visa because without your i-20 you wouldn't even get an interview date so i think that's the best they do concerning nigeria as a whole like nigerian students here at msu helping us specifically i don't think so Mm -hmm. i don't not that i know of if they are they should let me know because i don't know (laughs) if they're helping us but um i feel like if you had if i had an issue getting a visa and it was because my embassy kept closing up and I did contact MSU, I feel like they might do something because mm-hmm. it's not my fault, you know? Like, yeah, they might. But the thing is, Boko Haram isn't exactly like an, well, from what I think, my perspective, I don't think it's an like Islamic group. Mm-hmm. I think because they're from the north and most Northerners are Islamic, you might think so, but I think they're purpose is to like wipe out western civilization Mm. and if you notice they go for schools and like malls and like anything they feel will be western they don't think we need like education because it's western and anything they feel like is western civilization they will attack and they feel like i don't think they think girls in particular should be going to school Mm. so that may explain the chibok girls that were kidnapped but mostly westernization and education and stuff like that they, they don't believe in it and they're trying to wipe it out
1: mm-hmm. one other thing i wanted to talk about is kind of your perspective of the u.s's understanding of what's going on there uh. um <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that we saw um after the kidnapping of the children mm-hmm. um is the sparking of the hashtag bring back our girls mm-hmm. and you know celebrities and the news picking it up and then to me it seems like everything kind of died down it was like it didn't happen right away so yeah. everyone forgot about it so what do you do? You think that achieved anything? And what do you what do you want to see happen in the U.S.?
0: This is my opinion. Mm-hmm. I'm not speaking for whole people, but I feel now this is strongly from my heart that I feel Boko Haram was being fed because the whole social media being about bring back our girls. I think it became a trend more than it was to help, mm-hmm. and I think that celebrities many celebrities say doing it and like oh if we don't do it we don't seem like we want to help but there's no there's no underlying like help they weren't doing anything extra they were just writing on paper and bringing but i get we appreciate the support but come on like it became a trend and as you can see as trends are it died and dude it died and um I feel like Boko Haram felt important. Like, they were being fed and they they felt very in control. Like, if they could cause all this controversy and stuff, they had power, obviously. And I just think, look, they're beca- in my opinion, they became worse after mm-hmm. all the social media. Mm-hmm. So, but,
1: I mean, yeah, it's definitely understandable. I mean, words mm-hmm. only do yeah. so much. I
0: mean, I appreciate the gesture. It was nice. It was great. Mm-hmm. Me, personally. But... I don't think it did anything. No one went out of their way to do anything extra.
1: Mm -hmm. right. Other than a hashtag on Mm -hmm. Twitter, yeah. Um, and it 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 reminds me of um in two thousand twelve with the Coney thing too. I mean, yeah. It it seems Mm -hmm. to me very similar. Of it was just this big movement and then it Mm -hmm. died down right away. Yeah, and nothing really happened of it. But um, so moving more towards uh, Michigan State students themselves. Um, as far as a knowledge and understanding of the conflict, do you feel like students or community members know enough about the issue? Or are there anything in particular that you wish that they knew more about?
0: No, I don't think they do know a lot about it. I think they know what they've heard or they've seen or what they think they know. They, as you, Many people think it's like Islamic. Like it's like they think it's like an Al-Qaeda thing. Like it's. Oh, the Muslims are like wiping out Christians. It it isn't. And there's this other the other conspiracies like in the country saying it's political and they're trying to get rid of the current president and put in a northerner. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to you see they're not really killing only the northerners. They're also killing other people because you're just throwing bombs anywhere and it's killing anyone. Mm-hmm. So Because we do have Easterners and other people from other parts of the country that live in the North. So I feel like they're doing it so they kill everyone. And it's like the president doesn't have control of his own country. So he shouldn't be president. So there should be a new president from their own side. Because the Northerners are the majority of the country. So that's a conspiracy theory that Mm -hmm. some other people have. But like people here think it's like Al-Qaeda. And they don't have much knowledge of it. I feel like if it's one thing they should know it's not Al Qaeda and that's why it affects us more because we have siblings, we have families that go to school and schools are big targets in this whole thing. So they should know that like innocent people are dying, children, especially are victims, a lot of them. Villages are being wiped clean. Last time they killed a village of like nine hundred people. Like so people don't realize the the severity of the problem they just think it's sadly it's just another muslim group trying to wipe out christians yeah Mm -hmm.
1: well um thank you so much for being with us i i want to keep you i want to let you know that we're keeping you in our thoughts here at the station (laughs) and we're gonna on exposure try to make sure that we're continuing to stay updated and giving good information and making sure that people are informed about it so i do want to thank you so much for talking with (laughs) us
0: no problem
1: You are listening to WDBM Impact 89 FM. The statewide Proposal 1 has already gained much exposure through the extensive support by business communities. And although lawmakers in both parties support this proposal, some opposition is propping up as we approach next week's primary. Reporter Fritz Klug joined me in the studio to help unwrap this complex proposal. Today, we're in the studio with Fritz Klug, who is a news reporter for MLive. And Fritz, as we start to move towards election season, we're going to start featuring different state issues here on Exposure. And uh, we thought the best place to start would be one of the um, proposals or the proposal, the statewide proposal that's on the August August 5th primary. I saw that you did a... um, you did a piece on kind of explaining it and breaking down this complicated proposal, so I thought it would be good to have you in the studio and just chat about it. So before we get started, can you just give us a little bit of background on yourself and how you got uh, started as a news reporter for Live?
3: Yeah, so I um, thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to talk about Proposal 1, which is a really complex subject. So <laughs> <laughs> hopefully we're all ready for that. But yeah, I'm a reporter for MLive.com. Uh, we're the largest news and media organization in the state. Um, So we have offices all across Michigan from Grand Rapids and Kalamazoo to Flint, Saginaw Bay City, Ann Arbor, Detroit, and Lansing where I work. And um, so I've been working for MLive for about four years now, Mm -hmm. covering a wide variety of politics starting off in Kalamazoo. And I've been in Lansing for the last year and a half. Very cool.
1: And so you mostly do a lot of politics. Is it mostly statewide stuff or do you do local coverage too?
3: Yeah. So I I focus uh, for the political reporting that I do, I focus on uh, federal and congressional issues Mm -hmm. mostly, but... Um, Last week, we had a long series on the personal property tax, which is the only uh, ballot proposal on um, the August 5th primary uh, ballot. So it was kind of all hands on deck, and we all worked on it. So a variety of things. And I also do some entertainment reporting as well uh, with our Michigan's Best Project.
1: Yeah, I was really impressed. You guys had a ton of coverage on the proposal. (laughs) I mean, everything from haikus about it to your video to uh, uh, different interviews. So that's what really sparked my interest about it. What about Proposal 1 sparked your interest?
3: Well, I think it's it's something that um, at M Live, you know, the staff we really feel an obligation to explain these issues to our readers. Um, so, you know, it may not be the most um, proposal one may not be the most exciting. Uh, ballot proposal out there that's ever been on the ballot. actually people have told me it's the most complicated ballot proposal uh, that's been on the ballot in the last few decades. But I, I think it's you know something that we feel a strong obligation to inform our readers and give them as much information as possible to um, make you know decisions they feel educated about. Um, When it comes to the election, I mean that's that's what I think news organizations are all about. So we take that really seriously, and we devote the time and resources to have a long, week-long project. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, and you have really been breaking down every part, and I see again and again just talking about how uh, everyone's worried that people are going to be just voting no on it because it is so complicated. So uh, before we kind of break it down step by step, similar to how you guys did, can you just explain? generally is hard for this <laughs> <one>. <laughs> As simply as possible. In just a couple sentences, can you explain what Proposal 1 is trying to do?
3: Right. Yeah. So right now, businesses and manufacturers pay something called the personal property tax on equipment that they have that they use for their businesses. So that's anywhere mm-hmm. from microwaves, computers, all the way to a drilling press that a manufacturer would have. So the personal property tax is different than uh, your regular property tax that you pay on the land. It's all the things in the company that's not the actual land ownership so this tax has been around since the late 1800s it's been around for a long time and businesses have always not liked it simply because the tax um you know it's a headache to to pay you have to figure out all the stuff that's on there and it's just another tax you have to pay and michigan is only one of the two states in the great lakes region that still has it so um when rick snyder was elected he was very much He wanted to repeal this tax. He repealed Mm -hmm. the Michigan business tax um, in his first two years. And he wanted to, you know, do something with this. So long legislative history, but basically they came to a compromise with municipalities because this personal property tax goes on to fund cities, you know, police departments, fire departments. So it's a huge, for some communities, it's a huge amount of revenue. And um, so they came up with this agreement um, where, you know, the personal property tax would be um, phased out for small businesses and manufacturers and that money that revenue would be replaced by a new assessment in part but also the state would kick in money to kind of cover the the bill so businesses You know, have that tax cut, but municipalities stay whole with the level of funding they have now. Mm -hmm.
1: Okay, with cutting this tax, is the decrease substantial for businesses? Is this a big decrease for a lot of these businesses?
3: Yeah, I think so. I talked to a uh, business here in Lansing, um, and they said it's going to be around ten to twenty thousand dollars a year. Now, and, and they told me that this the tax isn't a tax that's going to that's going to make a business say oh, I'm leaving Michigan right away. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, that extra bit of money. And for a company like Ford, who has, you know, they're heavy on manufacturing, right? And their personal property tax bills, I'm sure, are um, very high. I, You know, supporters say it could be the difference between Ford opening a new plant here or moving across the state. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, when it comes to business related things, there's a lot of intangible um, mm-hmm. things like that. But you know it does have an impact, and businesses. I mean, it's it's more money. It's for that company. It's an extra ten to twenty thousand dollars. They can they say they can invest in you know hire new people or mm-hmm. you know having for a new part for their machine or, or whatever. So I, I think it's something that you know supporters say will increase the business climate in Michigan. Mm-hmm.
1: Talking about how it's going to be phased out, the small business tax is being repealed this year. Right?
3: Yes. Yeah, so um earlier this year the legislature voted to re- uh, repeal the tax for small businesses that have less than $80,000 of taxable property value for the personal property tax. So that, that's that gone now, but it's tied barred to Proposal 1. So if Proposal 1 fails, that tax will be reinstated. Okay, gotcha.
1: And then as far as um, other businesses, how are they being phased out with new – there's new equipment, which
3: is – Right, yeah. So those are some of the, the three um, kind of um, – Parts of the personal property tax, so it's the small businesses um, mm-hmm. with less than eighty thousand dollars of personal property taxable value, um, and then the other uh, group is manufacturers. So think about you know the Fords of the world um, and General Motors that they um, they're going to be phased out of paying the personal property tax simply because it's such a large amount of money that they pay. Um, so any new so if Proposal One passes, any new equipment that they purchase will not be. Um, on the will, will not be taxed. Okay, and then any equipment they have now will be phased out after ten years. So basically, mm-hmm. it's kind of a gradual thing. So there's just not a shock to either a the communities to the state or to the businesses or manufacturers. Okay, and then um, looking at how they're gonna
1: how the government is planning on making up this lost revenue for the municipalities, um, there's the assessment fee, and then coming from the general fund the well, two sections
3: yeah so there's two ways to kind of make whole um, the funding to municipalities and this came up earlier this year um, kind of with negotiations between the legislature municipalities and the business community and basically they needed to find ways to make the municipalities fully whole instead of just partially full which they originally had mm-hmm. um, so I um, businesses, big manufacturers said, hey, we'll foot some of the bill, you know, because we really think the tax, you know, repealing the tax will be good. We'll pay some of the bill to pay back municipalities. So, um, if you look at 2028, you know, when everything is phased in and things are kind of complete, right. Um, businesses and manufacturers will have a $600 million less tax cut. So basically they'll get cut $600 million, um, you know, from the personal property tax bill to make up for that a hundred million dollars of that will come from this new assessment fee that manufacturers will pay. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, you know, so for them, so if you take a look at like the $600 million, uh, tax cut that they have, they're footing, you know, they're paying about 20% of what they did before a hundred million out of the 600 million. Mm-hmm. So for them, that's a, you know, that, that's a lot less than um, they paid before. Um, so that's kind of like their goodwill effort to say, Hey, you know, we will so, you know, it's important for our communities to, have funding, but also have a secure form of funding. So um, that's what we're doing there. Then the other um, uh, $500 million comes from kind of a variety of sources. It would come from the state's uh, general fund, which is kind of like the, the cash fund that the state has. And um, that money will come from a few things, the state, the state and proponents say. And it's kind of some of the issues that are, um, I guess, less tangible that they predict. Mm-hmm. They predict that... Um, well, they know that there's going to be expiring tax credits right okay. now. So people will start paying taxes that they currently aren't paying now. So that's going to be some revenue coming in. And is
1: that businesses or individuals?
3: Businesses. Yep. Okay. businesses. So sometimes, you know, before, like if you wanted a business to come into the community or stay, it's like, hey, you're not going to pay taxes for 10 years. Mm. Right. So th- some of those are going to be phased out. So that's going to be more money coming in.
1: And then another big one is the use tax, right?
3: Yep, the use tax. So they predict that there's going to be an increase in the use tax revenue. Now that the use tax percentage will increase but that more money will be paid for the use tax okay and can
1: you explain the use tax a little bit
3: yeah it's kind of a complicated catch-all tax (laughs) um i I think one way that um we all should be paying the use tax right Uh, you know technically on um items we purchase out of state that includes stuff off of amazon and on your taxes there's that form that says how much how much did you pay on items you know out of state basically Mm -hmm. online purchases that you don't pay state tax on that's where the use tax comes. So items that you buy from out of state um, are part of the use tax, but also um, hotel lodgings, um, car rentals, tele- telecommunication. You know the use tax is kind of an umbrella tax that collects on that. So I think as we're spending m- buying more stuff online and um, you know people more telecommunication fees are out there, they see a you know the increase in the use tax, mm. so they think those will kind of generate enough revenue, that $500 million to help um, help kind of offset the cut.
1: And does the use tax mostly affect individuals, or is that businesses as well, or is it a split between the two? Individuals
3: and businesses both pay it, yeah. Okay.
1: Got it. And so, um, because these funds are tied to the general fund, does it raise any concerns about future budget cuts during like times of um, financial constraint or anything?
3: Yeah, so that that's an interesting thing about this proposal up until maybe like a week ago there was no organized opposition to this at all mm-hmm. um simply because i think um it was passed bipartisan in the legislature um but there was a study that was done that looked at it that said um you know there's a couple studies that looked at different parts of it and one of the studies looked at you know kind of raised the question which is you know a good question that you know voters could ask themselves is that you know this will be, this is, you know, $500 million from the general fund that's going to offset, you know, this tax cut. Mm-hmm. But if this $500 million is going to be coming in anyways, could that be used for other spending priorities? Mm-hmm. So in a lot of ways, um, you know, it going to repeal, replace, you know, the revenue for personal property tax. While it's going to communities, it's also, you know, it can be seen as, you know, going to a tax cut to businesses. Mm-hmm.
1: And how how sustainable do you think this is long term? This shift from the property tax to the the these two sources.
3: Yeah, so I think it's something that um, lawmakers and um, you know the treasury office and um, other organizations you know support, and they feel confident about it. Um, so I think I think there's you know that you know that those groups of people and organizations support it, but I think there's also, you know, some groups have, you know, and individuals have come out concerned about, you know, what if there's another financial collapse or something like that, you mm-hmm. know, how, how can we make sure that this funding is um, is going to be there? You know, if, you know, cause it's, you know, more than 10 years down the road, what, what could happen in that time? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there is some concern about that, but not a lot of concern from, you know, Organized opposition or organized groups. So basically, I don't think it's caused enough concern early on where groups organize to kind of campaign against it. Mm-hmm. And
2: gotcha. part of
3: that really is, um, and what a lot of groups who are supporting this, you know, it may not be the most perfect solution for them, but it's a good compromise because, you know, they worked on the compromise earlier this year. And I think a fear for a lot of people who support this is that if this fails and, you know, this replacement revenue is not in store, then the legislature could come back later this year and just repeal it without any replacement revenue. Mm. So I think that that's a concern from a lot of people. It's like, look, this is what's happening. It's likely going to get repealed anyways. This is a good compromise for everyone involved. So let's take the best compromise instead of trying to get something perfect for us or, you know... Mm -hmm. Gotcha.
1: And then um, moving forward to looking at how these funds are going to be distributed, like we said earlier, mm-hmm. it varies a lot for the mun- municipalities. So can you talk about how it's going to be distributed distributed to the different municipalities?
3: Yeah. So um, leading into this, um, the, the state treasury office had municipalities who received money from the personal property tax um, kind of document what they've received over the last few years. So that's going to kind of be a standard so everyone gets like the funding that they've uh, had before. Mm-hmm. So if Proposal 1 is passed, um, there will be a new Board of Citizens appointed by the governor. And these citizens, like their job will be to distribute the money. Mm-hmm. And um, right now the, um, the agreement is or the, the plan is to give municipalities the same level of funding they've received, you know, on average in the last couple of years. Mm. Um, and then there's going to be a slight increase every year in the future to kind of keep up, you know, with the cost of living and inflation and all that. So, um, that would be, you know, doled out to the communities like that. And, you know, some people are concerned that this is a new, you know, government board being created, but I think it's created as a way to kind of, you know, be separate, appointed by the governor, separate from lawmakers mm. to kind of distribute, distribute those monies. Okay.
1: And um, like you said, there wasn't a lot of opposition. And then since then, a few people have come out against the proposal. Mm-hmm. Um, one of those people is uh, the mayor of Warren, who came out against it, uh, wrote something in the, um, the Detroit Free Press about it. And I just wanted to kind of review some of the things that he said, uh, concerns that he raised and, um, you know, are these valid? Are mm-hmm. these things that lawmakers are worried about? Um, he state, one of the things that he stated is that um, his city is expecting loss of 15 percent um from some of their voter approved millages losing as much as ten point five million by the time all these um, tax cuts are implemented uh, because of concerns over these new exemptions and lack of clarity about the new use law. Do you think these concerns are valid?
3: Um, you know, I think it's I think there's a lot of uncertainty with the proposal. Um, and, you know, those are good questions that are being raised about it. Um, I think there's just a lot of uncertainty about, you know, municipalities are already stretched thin as it is. Mm-hmm. So any changing to the funding could be um, could be an issue. Um, I, I think if you look at other uh, municipalities, I think, um, you know, Lansing Mayor Verge Manera and Lansing Mayor Nathan Triplett both support the proposal, um, as does, you know, the city of Kalamazoo and a lot of other municipalities. So they've kind of studied studied it as well. And for their communities, they say it works. But I think, you know, those questions are good ones. And I think, um, you know, hopefully, you know, he can get some answers for the city of Warren on Mm -hmm. it.
1: And then the other um, uh, point that he made that I wanted to talk about a little bit is that he uh, said that it should be left up to local jurisdiction to determine whether it can afford to exempt private properties, Uh, basically saying that this law is taking away from the local government and putting it into the state government. Mm -hmm. Is that a, a good concern as well? Is that a concern to be aware of?
3: Well, I think, um, you know, it kind of breaks down, um, like on the federal level, the issue of state's rights, but also local rights where they want to have, um, you know, that local control. And I think he's, he's raised some issues that, you know, I haven't heard from other people. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, when the editorial came out, that was kind of as we were finishing up our reporting on, on proposal one as well. But I, I think that, um, You know, some of those issues related to kind of the related to the uncertainty of what, you know, they kind of feel uncertain if proposal one will, uh, you know, what it will do to the the real bottom line in 10 years after um, if it gets passed and kind of implemented over time. Mm hmm.
1: Gotcha. Well, hopefully we cleared some of that up again. <laughs> Definitely a very complicated uh, proposal, but thank you so much for being with us. Um, we'll keep. We'll try to keep our listeners updated on this proposal and other issues coming up um, during this next election season. Hopefully, we'll have you back again as well. So, thanks so much for being here.
3: Yeah, and if anyone you know wants to read more about this proposal, um, we have you know a lot of different ways to hit it. You know, mm-hmm. between the regular narrative uh, story that uh, Jonathan Osteen wrote to. We have videos and quizzes and other ways to kind of attack it from all directions. Mm-hmm. So,
1: And we'll include um, a couple links on our website to some great. of the articles that you guys have written. And, again, our website is www.impact89fm.org. Thanks so much for being with us. Hey,
3: thank you. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure. At the football game, Jim shows the telltale signs of being wasted. He starts flexing for the camera. He refers to his muscles as gunboats. He screams, How's this for a halftime show? Jim streaks the field. It's easy to tell if you've had way too many to drive, but what if you've had just one too many to drive? Never underestimate just a few. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, the Ad Council, and this station.
0: For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to The Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week.
3: Sunday nights, check out Sit or Spin from 8 to 10 p.m., where you can voice your opinion on what new music we play here on The Impact.
1: Only on
4: Impact Primetime
1: gentlemen. Want to hear our specials? Sure. First, we have the seafood special.
3: It's been sitting around here for a week. We're known around these parts for food poisoning.
2: Wouldn't it be great if you could be warned of life's risks? If you have diabetes, you can. It's called A1C, a simple blood test that can help measure your risk of complications, such as heart attack. To find out more, go to www.diabetesa1c.org, brought to you by the American Diabetes Association, Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation International, and the Ad Council.
1: Now, back to Impact Exposure. You are listening to WDBM Impact 89 FM, and this is Exposure. In 15 minutes, we'll update you on the MSU construction plans for the remainder of the summer. But first, the LGBT Resource Center of MSU made a monumental announcement last week with plans for an anonymous million-dollar donation for the facility. Director Deanna Hurlbert discussed with me what the center has been working on and what their future holds.
4: The Resource Center exists to help assure that all students have a fantastic Michigan State experience. A big part of what we do is helping to prepare students to thrive in a world that's diverse and often diverse in ways that they're not prepared uh, for when they come to campus. Issues of sexual diversity and gender-related diversity are things that folks coming out of high school generally aren't uh, ready to tackle. don't have the opportunity, rather, to explore and learn about in high school. So we help to bridge that gap so that people are better prepared to work in the world.
1: Mm-hmm. So it's not just for LGBT students. It's for all students to kind of yeah, have a community is. where mm-hmm, we're mm-hmm. accepting. Got it. And so when did you for personally get involved with the center? Have you been there since the beginning of it?
4: Well, ironically, I was actually involved in the center to a certain extent before it even existed. Oh. I was a student here at Michigan State from 1990 to 1994, and I came out in 92, and I was a student activist and advocate who helped to uh, work with the university to establish a position dedicated to serving students who were marginalized by their sexual orientation Mm -hmm. and gender identity. So as a student here in 1994, uh, in conjunction with a handful of other students who were out at the time, uh, we were involved in selecting Brent Bilodeau as the first uh, uh, program coordinator for lesbian and gay concerns. Mm -hmm. Brent Bilodeau went on to become the director of the LBGT Resource Center I went on to have a career in public health and education and then ultimately found myself back here at Michigan State as the assistant director in 2008. Mm-hmm. So it's a, I think it's a, a, a beautiful turn of events <laughs> that uh, my vision as a student has become uh, my career and passion at this stage of my life.
1: Mm. And so when, when did the center get its official start date? When did the Resource Center officially start at MSU?
4: We had a first staff person in 95, Mm -hmm. the physical resource center. There was an office dedicated um, without really a functional space. It was literally just a a desk space and not really anything that students could uh, could spend time in other than meeting with staff. Uh, It would have been 2006. Mm -hmm. And then we've been in the current space, space, which is much more functional since 2010.
1: Mm. And so I don't want to compare to other universities because obviously every university is very different. But one thing I did notice is that University of Michigan had an LGBT resource center since the 1970s. Do you think that was a sign that we've been lagging behind in LGBT support and education?
4: Uh, not necessarily. Uh, the establishment of the physical center, um, you know, it's a significant gesture. Mm-hmm. It, it really is. Having that physical space and that commitment, uh, Michigan has had the good fortune of having uh, strong donors who've who helped to establish that original center. Um, And, uh, of course, you have to have the institutional commitment there, even if you have donors and the funding in place. Um, So I wouldn't necessarily say that the University of Michigan has uh, uh, better institutional support for LBGT folks at this point in time But they do have the privilege of being nested in Ann Arbor, (laughs) which is uh, a little bit more of a cosmopolitan environment, Mm -hmm. um, which adds to uh, the reputation of the University of Michigan as being an LBGT-friendly space. But uh, Michigan State University actually has a really strong legacy of LBGT support. um, Based on the leadership of students, rather, Mm -hmm. Um, student leadership here has pulled the university along into its progressive place. So for instance, East Lansing has the first civil rights ordinance in the country uh, to protect people based on their sexual orientation. And that was from the early 70s. That was done by students. So any progress that the university has made, whether it's about uh, adding sexual orientation or gender identity to our anti-discrimination policy or about having options for flexible housing, where in which people can live with whomever they would choose, uh, any of all of those efforts have ultimately been led by students, and then uh, accommodated, accepted by the university.
1: Mm. And I think that brings up a good question: Do you think that the university has given enough support to LGBT issues, um, or is there any any role that you would like to see them fill moving forward?
4: Yeah, I think that um, institutionally for Michigan State University, I think Student Affairs and Services in general. Um, my my impression is. That were less funded and staffed than our other institutions. Mm-hmm. So I feel that um, we've we've been very creative in the OBGT Resource Center. Uh, we've had the the good fortune of being able to regain another full time staff. We're almost back to the staffing levels that we had before the <laughs> <laughs> Um So we're almost back to the staffing levels that we were at in two thousand eight when I came here. Um, but I think in general. Um, it's hard for me to complain about resources for the LBGT Resource Center when I see, you know, our counseling center is staffed at uh, probably, I, I think the staffing level is about half of what it would be at a comparable institution, mm-hmm. um, and uh, same thing for support from another other parts of critical services and student affairs, so it's, it's hard for me to complain. <laughs>
1: With a lot of student services, there's not really the controversy that surrounds LGBT issues. With some people, they do view it still as a controversial issue. How do you communicate with these people who, um, you know, may may be considered to oppose your work?
4: Sure. No, it's it's a great question. I think um, that uh, the work of our office is about helping people understand issues around sexual orientation and gender identity. And the stance I take is that, uh, depending on the context, is that uh, folks are perfectly allowed to have a uh, different moral perspectives mm-hmm. okay? um, and, and I personally and, and in the work that we do, um, our work is not to challenge someone's religious beliefs or their moral prerogative. Our perspective is to hold people accountable to the obligations of their employment. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the uh, what is the, the culture and the expectations as a part of being a medical provider? Are your, for instance? are your personal ethics in conflict with your professional ethics. And so part of my work is helping people sort that out so that they can find uh, peace for themselves moving forward.
1: Mm-hmm. And earlier you brought up um, talking about students and a lot of the uh, kind of student-driven efforts here. But one of the the other efforts towards ed- education at the university has been the specialization in LGBT studies. And you were telling me earlier that um, you helped kind of get that ball rolling to get that specialization, specialization started?
4: Well, really, again, it was the students who initiated oh. it, right? <laughs> um, and uh, through ASMSU, a group called the what's now known as the Alliance of Queer and Allied Students. And there have been initiatives, uh, both on the part of faculty and uh, students, uh, and undergraduate as well as graduate students, to have a named program around issues of sexuality and gender. Uh, particularly LBGT studies or queer studies mm-hmm. as a discipline. Um, and uh, this is something, uh, having this area of scholarship available is something that's gonna draw students to Michigan State. It's gonna keep them to Michigan State. at Michigan State. There's a huge demand for this area of scholarship that Michigan State I believe is not necessarily lagging behind in terms of scholarship. There are a number of faculty, a very large number of faculty in courses that talk about relative content. Well, what we haven't had um, is uh, uh, a, a structure to allow it to be a an academic discipline that would be recorded on someone's transcript and in a way that would help people to pursue careers and further education in uh, things regarding sexual orientation and gender identity. So the Jensen is the home to the the specialization. The Jensen is under the College of Arts is within the College of Arts and Letters as an administrative home. Um, but Michigan State has a number of outstanding faculty uh, working on these issues. It's also become obvious that in order to attract and retain faculty who have issue, who have, do research in areas of sexual orientation and gender identity, um, it makes a strong has a strong impact on folks when they're looking to come here and establish scholarly careers uh, if their scholarship isn't supported here. Mm-hmm. So um, this will allow us to attract and to retain faculty.
1: Mm hmm. And so um, obviously, the big news for you guys at the LGBT Center is that you um, you recently had a very large donation, a million dollar gift. Um, so first of all, I, I got to say, it must feel incredible to know that you have that kind of support. Right.
4: Oh, it absolutely does. And really, you know, for the I, I mean, uh, when it, a million dollars is a lot of money mm-hmm. and that gets a lot of people's attention. But there are a few things that are it's really important for me to state. And that is that gifts are always relative <laughs> Right, mm-hmm. and uh, for one family, a gift of 000, 000 a million dollars is really is very significant. For another family, uh, a gift of five hundred dollars would be a really significant gift for that family. We have students of lums who uh, are right out of college; they're making under thirty thousand dollars a year, and they're committed to gifts to the resource center of twenty five dollars a month. Mm-hmm. That is a big deal. $25 a month when you're right out of college is a lot of money.
1: <laughs> I don't think I could even do so, that right now. So, you know, I, don't, I'm
4: not, I don't, certainly don't want to demean a gift of a million dollars, but it's a great opportunity to talk about uh, talk about the work that we do and the power of having funds available to support the work. Mm-hmm. Again, this is a bequest. So that means that the funds don't actually become payable until the donors pass away. Mm-hmm. And uh, luckily for them, as well as for us, because they're wonderful folks, uh, uh, they're uh, vibrant, uh, healthy, and uh, expect them to be with us for uh, uh, a long, long time.
1: <laughs> well, then hopefully you guys don't see that gift for a while. Yeah. But you do bring up a good point that um, it's, it's more the relative. So do you have a lot of students coming back to you guys who have used you when they were here to come back and give gifts when they've graduated, do you see a lot of that?
4: More so in recent history, when we've had the physical center and staff to connect with students, uh, when we've gone through periods of time when we didn't necessarily have the staff to make those kind of personal relationships with students, it's a little bit hard. It was a little bit harder. Most of the the more significant, the larger monetary gifts that we're getting, are coming from people who uh, were students here. Uh, 10, 20, 30 years ago, mm-hmm. as well as former faculty and staff of the university.
1: And so now this is just kind of a, or it's more of a place where they can focus it now rather than before there wasn't really a an area where they could give money to support this. Yeah, there this.
4: wasn't really, a, this wasn't a thing. <laughs> this was not a thing.
1: <laughs> and so um, with this gift, one thing that you you have talked about in a couple publications is um, starting the Support Outreach Action and Respect Fund. And like the name suggests, you guys have four major areas, or you have four major areas of focus. So I was wondering if you could um, just kind of dive into each one and tell us what what that fund is looking forward to uh, achieving.
4: So SOAR, that language and the concept of it is the language and the creation of the donors as a part of their gift. Um, And that was evolved out of uh, conversations that we had with them um, about uh, what the future of the work will look like and the increasingly sophisticated needs of students mm-hmm. um so uh it's lo- loosely enough defined as uh around outreach uh advocacy empowerment kinds of work so that uh, um that we can meet the needs of the students at any point in time again visioning that this is funding that's not likely to come available mm-hmm. for you know let's say 30 years
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then before we go, um, what do you hope that the future of LGBT support and education looks like at MSU, you know, 10 or 20 years in the future?
4: Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think the future of the work is doing more education and facilitating more conversation and support regarding sexuality and the diversity of sexuality and sexual experience, um, mm-hmm. as well as increasing uh, complexity of gender identity and gender expression. So lesbian, bisexual, gay. Persons as well as transgender persons and genderqueer persons are always going to have uh, are always going to have uh, some unique support needs for community. There's a long legacy of of uh, of stigma and shame uh, to be uh, that's that's not going to go away anytime soon. I think emerging issues in the work uh, like I do is also looking at the more complex, nuanced. Uh, experience of sexuality for all students. Um, so I see emerging issues around. It, it's quite. It's it's complex stuff. But we have more and more students who are coming in who are to to the university who are, are in open relationships or in polyamorous relationships, or who are um, may have sexual partners of. Um, a variety of gender identities and expressions, but for themselves identify as being, as being heterosexual. Um, so the, this, the nature of sexuality, intimacy, whether or not, and ways in which people engage sexually uh, for younger people is, is uh, it's more complex now mm. than it has been. And we have a long way to go to catch up institutionally, both at Michigan State, as well as public education, public health in general.
1: Well, thank you very much for being with us. Um, we've been talking with Diana Hurlbert, who is the uh, director of the LGBT Re- Resource Center at MSU, and their website is um, lgbtrc.msu.edu. So thank you very much for being with us.
4: Thank you. In the heart, open
0: wide, my flower.
1: This is WDBM Impact 89 FM and you are listening to Exposure. I'm your host Stephen Rich. As the summer winds down and students start making their way back to campus, we give you a look at what has changed this season. Dan Bowman of the Strategic Infrastructures Planning and Facilities Department helps us explore what buildings have received a facelift this summer and what to expect for the next few weeks. So just to kind of start uh, with yourself, would you mind giving a little bit of background about
2: yourself? How long have you been here at MSU? Sure, I've Been here a long time, Uh, 24 years now, uh, not counting a four-year stint as a student. So Mm -hmm. I've been working for IPF, we call it, for the entire time in a variety of positions. Uh, I started out inspecting construction projects, moved into the design area, and now my current title as assistant vice president. Mm. And you said you got your degree here too? I did in civil engineering. Gotcha. Very cool. So you're a lifelong Spartan. (laughs) Yes, I am. And so what kind of things are you working on day-to-day personally? You know, day-to-day... Really, the largest portion of my work involves the design and construction uh, that occurs on campus. Mm-hmm. And we do, you know, probably $150 million worth of work on a yearly basis, um, maybe 250 projects. So, literally, in almost every building, every facet of campus, there's something going on right. at some point. And my job is to work with the team to manage those activities. Gotcha. And In Michigan,
1: there's an old saying that there's the four seasons. There's fall, winter, spring, and construction. And that seems to hold up at at MSU. You know, obviously, with students being gone every summer, it's much easier for you guys to get a lot of projects done. And I've been here every summer, so I'm always used to, um, you know, in the summer, expecting more areas to be kind of zoned off. So do you feel a a good amount of pressure to finish projects before students come back in August? Are you guys working year-round?
2: How does that work? We're really working year-round, but you're correct. The summer is a big push for us because there's certain areas, certain projects can go on year-round pretty easily, mm-hmm. a new building, for instance. Uh, there's other areas involving infrastructure, roadways, sidewalks, mm-hmm. uh, and also in the in the classroom, classroom projects. Uh, some of the projects are going to affect students in particular, projects in the residence halls. All that kind of work has to be done primarily in the summer season. So it's definitely much busier here in the summer.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, so a lot of planning and execution for the summer then during the school year?
2: Certainly. Yep. A lot of getting ready. <laughs> Um, and so what sort
1: of improvements have you guys bro- been working on this summer that students can look forward to in the fall?
2: We have actually are finishing a number of really nice projects uh, that I think students are going to enjoy. Uh, one of them, um, not only students, but the rest of the uh, the campus and, and outward community is the uh, addition to the Spartan Stadium that's going to do to finish up here in August. And that's going to provide uh, new restrooms, yay, for anybody who wants to go to a football <laughs> game, um, as well as uh, recruiting space, media space, and locker rooms uh, for the team and some of the athletics activities. Um, also on the athletics front, uh, MUN ice arena got a new ice system, and new ventilation system, oh. and we're gonna be turning that on here in August. So, um, if any of you are skaters out there, it's gonna be a much nicer, uh, sheet of ice to skate on as well as for the hockey team. Uh, we're doing a lot of infrastructure improvements up on North campus at the circle, mm. uh, where it's, it's closed right now. Um, but we do, um, in the summer, a lot of utility work, replacement of aged steam tunnels electrical systems, water lines, things like that. And all of that work is going to be completing this summer. Um, over at Munn Field, uh, we're opening up an artificial turf field on mm. the corner of Munn that will not only be uh, good for the band to practice on, but it will also be for intramural activities and other student activities. Mm. So that's kind of a neat project that's wrapping up. Um, <clears throat> Landon Hall is uh, one of our latest dining facilities that will be opening up here uh, come the end of August. And like we did with Brody and Shaw, some of the new uh, dining halls, this is another brand new state-of-the-art dining hall that really fits into the character of Landon Hall, so I think mm-hmm. people are really going to like it.
1: Yeah, I actually lived in uh, Mayo my sophomore year, and um, I finally saw some like preview pictures or something of Landon, and I was really glad to see that it still kind of has that, that old
2: um, West Circle vibe to it. Oh, it really does. It's mm-hmm. really, uh, we tried to capture the historic nature of Landon, and a lot of the... Um, Furniture and things like that within Landon. We use old barn wood. We use a lot of really neat <laughs> tile. Uh, a lot of uh, you know displays with old books because uh, from the old Landon Library, things mm-hmm. like that. So I think people will, re- will really like it.
1: Well, very cool. And then so looking to the the rest of the summer, um, as we're kind of wrapping up the summer and getting more towards school, uh, for all our walkers, drivers, pedestrians, um, what kind of detours or zones should they be aware of to kind of avoid for the rest of the summer?
2: Actually, you know, the summer's been kind of crazy, but uh, by August 15th, which is just a couple of weeks away, we're going to have all of our detours done. Everything's going to be opened up, sidewalks, roads, everything. That's our big push because that's when students really start coming in in mass uh, Mm -hmm. before the start of school. So we got a couple more weeks here where West Circle is closed. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a few sidewalks here and there around campus, but if you can just bear with us for a couple of weeks, things should really clean up nicely in the next by mid-August.
1: Great to hear. And so, looking forward um, as well, what kind of projects are currently being planned that you're excited to see finished in you know the next five or even ten years?
2: Um, there's a couple of neat ones going on. Uh, I didn't mention bioengineering, which is a large building. Uh, on South Campus next to the Clinical Center, mm-hmm. and that'll be an interdisciplinary science building with uh, College of Engineering, Human Medicine, and Natural Science mm-hmm. that'll be doing biomedical research. Uh, we're also working on another and kind of the final large dining hall upgrade, and that's over in Acres. Mm-hmm. That's in construction right now and should wrap up uh, around the first of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, As always, there's a lot of infrastructure still going on. A lot of research-related activity across campus in various labs, things like that. And then, of course, Frib, which is in the news all the time. And uh, construction is hot and heavy on that project, and that'll be going on for a couple of more years. Mm-hmm. Well, very cool. And if you are
1: looking for any um, construction info, detours, places to avoid uh, during the rest of the summer semest- semester, um, you can log on to construction.msu.edu
2: to check out the detours and make sure that your route is good to go. A little more detail on that website. Maybe it's not necessary. It gives a description of all the major projects that are going on, and it also has links to, uh, for instance, East Lansing and MDOT's uh, construction pages, so if you want to see what's going on. And we'll also provide a link to that up on the
1: website at impact89fm.org. So thank you so much for being with us. No problem. Thank you. We laughin' at ya, talking about you doin' that and that wet. We know you be hustlin' backwards, electric slide and rewind My pocket's lookin' like rerun. I begun to de- from you sippin' on that C- grubs Talking about you gon' kill, son you must think they real, son Go ahead and pop him, son, you ain't with me, might as well So after that one, take 10, I'm free Let the wrong bitch and I run? Rusty Got a game on lock, like we change that case Let get in it, Treat that motherfucker like police right? fuck Thank you for joining us tonight. Special thanks to Station Manager Gabriela Saldivia and General Manager Ed Glazer, as well as all our staff here at Impact 89FM. Tonight's show and all other exposure shows can be found on our website at www.impact89fm.org. Keeping you informed and bidding you farewell until next time. I'm Stephen Rich, and you've been listening to Impact Exposure, 89FM.
3: Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to
0: Impact Exposure.